You're listening to the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. My name is Kieran Pedley. Well, on this week's show, we're going to be going through the latest round of voting intention figures as usual, but we're going to be going a bit deeper this week. We'll be looking at the underlying voting intention trends that shape our politics. How do demographics dictate how we vote, things like age, housing, tenure, and so on? And how is the way that people are moving about the country shaping our political future? We'll be going deeper than usual to try and understand where we are now, how politics is changing, and what it might look like in the future. We're also going to be unpicking some of the latest polling on public opinion on the customs union. At some point, or we'd like to think so, the Prime Minister is going to have to make a decision about Britain's future relationship with the European Union, or at least what she wants from that relationship. But what do the public think as Theresa May heads for a clash with her cabinet colleagues and has to present a plan finally to Parliament? And on that note, we're going to be looking at polling around Northern Ireland. Some, um, some stories in the Times this week suggest that the Prime Minister has fallen out somewhat with Jacob Rees-Mogg and others over the future of the Union, citing that as a reason why we have to be very careful about what our customs relationship is with the uh, European Union in the future. We'll be looking at uh, polling in Northern Ireland and asking the question, could people in Northern Ireland really vote to be part of a united Ireland in the European Union? This is a topic that we've discussed on a, a sort of semi-recent episode of Polling Matters back in 2017. But we'll be going back into the numbers today, uh, seeing as they seem to be that bit more relevant right now. So to unpick all of this, I'm joined by fellow podcaster in crime, Leo Barassi. Leo, welcome back. Hello, Kieran. So we haven't spoke for a couple of weeks, Leo, um, and there's obviously been the small matter of the local elections. And I think that many of our listeners are probably tired of hearing my take on things via blogs and various podcasts. But... I kind of wanted to get your read on the situation. It seems like they were hotly contested in the spin game. I suppose it's always the case, isn't it? But what was your what was your take and what went down? Well, for Labour, they were not great, but not disastrous. Um, there was enough in there for Labour to be able to engage in that spin game that you refer to and point to the London results uh, and say that there was a lot of great progress. And if you looked at La- London in isolation, then it's entirely reasonable to say that Labour did do very well. Um, Clearly, there was some terrible expectation management with Wandsworth and Westminster, and even with Barnet. Um, And so it initially looked like not winning those was a bad result. But the truth is, the London results were perfectly fine, pretty good for Labour. The issue is, of course, what happened across the country. And that's where the problem is, if you are looking at Labour as a party that could potentially win a forthcoming election. Um, there was the data that um, uh, apparently came from Labour that Lucy Fisher at the Times had, which uh, was sort of just quite a quite a nice uh, bit of spreadsheet work that someone had done comparing the results um, in the 50 most marginal constituencies uh, from 2017 with the results uh, from the local elections. And essentially what it showed was that Labour were roughly evenly gaining and losing ground in those top 50 marginals. So uh, potentially uh, maybe winning enough to to edge a bit further forward, but certainly not decisive. And I think what what was striking and um, I think relevant to some of the stuff we're going to talk about today is that uh, Labour seems more to be losing ground in the leave voting marginals. So places like Southampton, Itchen, Bolton West, Morley and Outwood, um, and possibly some of the London 
remain voting marginals that um, were places like Finchley and Golders Green, Hendon. Um, for, for very, uh, for very specific reasons in some of those cases. Yeah, right? yeah. So those ones um, with large Jewish populations, um, but then Labour were, let's be clear, also gaining ground in some um, uh, remain voting marginals, places like Chipping Barnet and Putney. So gains and losses, which um, in normal times in politics you think is okay, but you know, let's not forget, Labour is still the opposition. Um, uh, a generous reading of this suggests that Labour could become the largest party. It's not great. I mean, historically, parties that go on to form the government generally at this stage of the parliament start having the beginnings of a daunting poll lead. So for Labour getting on for uh, a year after the election to be um, looking and trying to spin as a good result, something that points to being the largest party in the hung parliament is not precedent suggests a fantastic position to be in. And I think we'll come to, <clears throat> we'll explore some of these, uh, some of these numbers in more details through the podcast. So let's not go into too much detail here. But I mean, I think I've been quite vocal as something of a precedent skeptic on this because, because of all the things the government's going to have to to deal with. I mean, let, let's leave it at that, you know, in, in terms of negotiating Brexit, maybe a change in leadership, the, these sorts of things are, in my view, probably more important to where we end up than um, what happened in the local elections, although they are interesting. Um, and I suppose the uh, the big question at the next election is, you know, how much work do Labour have to do to deny the Tories a majority? Not very much. But then a wider question that I don't think people haven't seen much discussion of, and maybe there will be more discussion of it when we get closer to a general election, is, you know, okay, even if Labour were to form some sort of minority government, what can they get through? And maybe a a wider implication of the lack of a majority government of any stripe is that you know we're going to be in a in for a period of weak government and not a lot of substantive change at the moment but i suppose um that's going to depend on how the uh, political winds blow um well right and uh, just just a point on that the attack lines right themselves if labor are spending several years trying to uh inch towards a, a minority government. I mean, we've seen how uh, how much problems that called for Labour under Ed Miliband. I'm not convinced that Corbyn has the strengths to um, uh, negate the weakness that Labour had in 2015 when um, they, was, they were seen as having a, a nice but weak-willed leader who would uh, potentially roll over to what his coalition partners wanted him to do. Yes, but then it, I suppose it's maybe harder to be um, to try and scare people on the basis of the SNP propping up a, um, a hypothetical Labour government when you know there's other issues around border polls in Northern Ireland. But we'll come we'll, we'll come back and the DUP and all the rest of it. But we'll come to some of that later mm. without uh, without sort of getting to the punchline too soon. Um, but let's quickly go over some of the latest voting intention figures. Um, so there's been a slew of polls, as I sort of mentioned in the introduction um, this week. I'm going to focus again on the main two parties. So BMG have had a poll out. Again, they, they tend to publish their voting intention figures a fair bit after they've been done. So for BMG, the field work was at the beginning of May, um, 39 apiece for the two main parties. Lib Dems on 10. Um, ICM, The Guardian, their latest has the Tories three points up, um, 43 to 40. Salvation have the Tories one point up, 41 to 40. Um, YouGov have the uh, Tories five points up, um, 43 to 38. And YouGov have had a few polls like that. So, um, and then the Lib Dems hovering up around the double, double figures mark, but normally sort of eight, nine, ten, something like that. 
Now, we're going to be getting into, as I mentioned, some of the details about what explains some of these figures. But I was I was looking through some of the cross breaks of these polls to try and understand where the differences were. And there aren't many smoking guns, I'll be honest. But one of the things I am fascinated by is this idea of who's holding their vote the most. Um, now, we look at we look at the voting intention polls at the moment. YouGov, which has the five point Tory lead, has Labour losing the, a greater proportion of their 2017 vote than the Tories. So. Um, 10% of the Labour vote uh, from 2017 in this YouGov poll that has them five points ahead is going to either the Lib Dems or other. Um, they're only holding 87% of the vote from 2017. The Tories are holding 93 And then if we look at some of the other polls, um, Salvation have the Tories holding 93% of their vote, uh, Labour 94%. That's the one that only has the Tories one point, one point ahead. BMG have a slightly different picture. Tories again 93%, um, Labour 87 again. Um, like YouGov, but then I think Labour seeming to take a bit more non-voters um, to to sort of understand why why the, the results are neck and neck there. So why am I bringing up those numbers? Why does any of this matter? Well, I think one of the things that I'm we're going to be talking about today is this idea that there are two big voting coalition blocks of you know around forty percent, the Conservative block and the Labour block. And one of the things I think is going to be really important and kind of explains where we are as a country in my opinion is that both parties are trying to hold together these blocks of, of voters that in some cases have very different views on things like brexit let's say for the obvious example or um you know certain other things such as um immigration or whatever it might be um, but brexit being the most obvious one and at the moment the voting intention polls appear to suggest the tory vote is more solid than the labor vote now I'm a bit sceptical of that. I think that 2017 gives us good evidence of how the Labour vote does return home um, when it comes to it, when, when it comes to an election. Um, but then I suppose that's subject to debate, right? Other people would say that actually the Labour vote is more flaky than the Conservative vote. Whatever, whatever you think, one of the things that the voting intention polls are showing at the moment is the Tories are consistently holding more than 90% of their 2017 vote. There's always going to be some churn. You're never going to get 99%, 100%. Um, saying that they'll vote for the same party on election on election. Um, so the, the Tory vote right now, Leo, looking solid. I mean, what what do you make of some of these uh, numbers? Well, we had this uh, debate quite recently, and I think a, a point that um, is just really difficult to uh, kind of uh, come down one side of uh, is when last year's Labour voters are saying that they wouldn't vote Labour now. Um, are they going to do what they did last year? And when push comes to shove in an election, say, yeah, I'm prepared to vote Labour because I really dislike the Tories so much. Um, or uh, might this time there be reasons why they'll say, uh, actually, now I, now I see that Labour could genuinely form a government. I don't want to vote for them. Last year, it was an anti-Tory vote, but it, but it kind of felt safe because no one thought Labour could win. Now it's different. And I just think that's really difficult to, uh, to call either way because the reality is there'll be a feeling around the election um, that, uh, about whether or not people actually want a Labour government or want to stop the Tories that... You just kind of can't call this far away. No, I think that's true. I mean, as I sort of alluded to in the way I set that question up, I think that the, I, I think the Labour vote has room to grow, but that's an, an interpretation of two broad interpretations you've outlined, and I, I can't claim that as fact. But what I do think is striking is how the Conservative vote seems reasonably solid at the moment, which on the one hand seems to vindicate 
the I'm not saying the Prime Minister is doing this purely because of that voting block, but it seems to vindicate the Prime Minister's strategy at the moment to try and keep everybody happy as best she can. She's playing a delicate balancing act with Brexiters in the cabinet, isn't she, about you know, where does she go on this customs union, well, customs partnership or MaxVac and all this sort of stuff. And she seems to be able to, if you're being generous, quite skillfully hold everyone together. But I wonder, she can't do that forever, can she, Leo? And at some point, she's going to have to come down on one side or the other. She's going to have to make decisions. And then will that block be as solidly behind her? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, we, I think... Uh, a phenomenon of uh, British voting patterns at the moment that uh, I think most of our listeners will have heard us discuss and uh, seen discussed in other places is that we are arguably in the middle of a realignment from um, traditional drivers of voting patterns that we've seen over the decades and have still lasted things like um, uh, class-based identities to something that feels more cultural and more values driven um, on a different set of axes. So, um, and I know we're going to talk about some of this stuff as we go on, but the point is, if we're in the midst of a realignment, then you would expect voting pattern votes, uh, votes, uh, voters to shift between the elections. So um, you would expect in order for that realignment to happen, that a, a reasonable proportion of last year's Tory voters and last year's Labour voters to not vote for the same party next time in order for there to be this realignment. So um, I guess whether or not they hold the same coalition together is one thing, uh, but you can still do very well by losing a lot of your voters as long as you're going to win a lot of the other voters. And mm. fundamentally, that's that's arguably a Tories becoming the party of leave and Labour becoming the party of Remain. Now, is that happening? I think that's a good question. And I suppose, I guess implicit in what I, the, the, the question I'm posing, and I, I suppose listeners will have their views on this as well, is if there is a perception, rightly or wrongly, that Theresa May has given away too much on Brexit um, in, in the eventual deal that is done, will that have electoral consequences for her? I don't know if we can necessarily know that. So for what, what I mean by that is she's holding 93% of the 2017 Tory vote now, but would it be less in a world where she's got some sort of customs partnership, whatever the name is of it, that lots of UKIPers that voted for the Conservatives in 2017 don't like the look of, you know? Um, I suppose on the one hand, you could say, yeah, that that's going to create a betrayal narrative that's going to hurt her. And even if UKIP got... 7% of the vote at the general election instead of 4 or, or whatever what was it, I can't remember what it was now, 2 or 3 or 4, whatever it was, then that could be a, a real uh, game changer for the Tories. On the other hand, you know, we've seen with Labour, they've managed to cobble, uh, hold a, their Remain voters without any harm. Um, the Lib Dems haven't gone through the roof, have they? So maybe that will be the same for the Tories. I guess we're just going to have to wait and see. I, I, we, can't, we can't really um, tell how that's going to play out. But there's been some really in-depth polling this week, Leo, hasn't there, um, on a report for CPS um, uh, on age and, vote and sort of voting consideration numbers, hasn't there? So I wondered if you wanted to take us through a bit of that. Yeah, there's a lot of really interesting stuff in there. Um, let me start by talking about uh, quite a simple question, but one that actually says a lot about uh, the topics that we've just discussed and that we've talked about on previous podcasts, which was quite simply on a scale of zero to 10, where 10 means you would definitely vote for them and not means you would definitely not vote for them, how likely are you to consider voting for each of the following parties? And it asks that for the Tories, for Labour and the Lib Dems. Um, and I've had a look at those numbers and just sort of 
pulled out some of the really interesting highlights uh, to sort of give us a sense of where we are. Because obviously what this does is it goes beyond the usual voting intent, which just gives you a sort of binary, um, who would you vote for, would you vote for them, would you not, but gives you a much wider sense of who's within reach of the parties and who do the parties repulse. And I think that sort of um, looking at the zeros and the tens on the scale is, is a very useful way of doing it. I think I also could, uh, find it useful to look at the sort of six, six, seven, eight, nine uh, likelihood to vote to see who's wider within reach. But just sort of for the sake of brevity, uh, I think a few numbers that, that jump out. And what they show is really this, how far the country is split on leave, remain, education and age. So 51% of Remainers say that they would never vote Tory. So that's just, just half of the bat of people who voted Remain would never vote Tory. And about the same 53% of Leavers would never vote Labour. So that's the zero out of 10 uh, sides of the scale. So for both the parties, half of the electorate, oh, sorry, a quarter of the electorate roughly is, is entirely out of reach. Um, and then age is, is kind of similar. So eight, uh, among 18 to 24-year-olds, 44% say they would never vote Tory. And I think the number that was really striking for me, uh, among 25 to 49-year-olds, so this is the biggest age split of the, of the four age splits in the poll, uh, um, 25 to 49-year-olds, 48% of them say that they'd never vote Tory. And then going up the age scale, 50 to 64-year-olds, 45% of them uh, say they'd never vote Labour, and 59% of people 65 and older would never vote Labour. Uh, so um, there's a real antipathy to the party um, um, as you go to the two parties as you go up the age scale. But just and the last last number I'll, I'll give before uh, I hand back. But um, looking at the other end of the scale was quite striking. That so I've talked about people who'd never vote for the parties, but actually it's not really mirrored at the would definitely vote for. So among 18 to 24 year olds, you've only got 22% of them who say they would definitely 10 out of 10 vote Labour. And among 25 to 49 year olds, um, that group that almost half of them said they'd never vote Tory, only 18, 1.8% of them would definitely vote Labour. Um, the biggest of these is 38% of the 65 plus would definitely vote Tory. But really, um, so you've got a lot of antipathy um, and, and there's also similarly, I won't give numbers, but at least educated, most educated splits pretty much um, uh, equally in terms of um, strong hostility to, to Labour and the Tories. Um, you've got a lot of antipathy um, blocks that really dislike one party or the other, slightly less love for either party, uh, but it's very clear that there are very sharp splits uh, with uh, the young, the Remainers, and the most educated Labour, the old, the Leavers, and the least educated Tory. Mm. I wonder, before we get into the, the weeds of it, I wonder whether, and I don't know the answer to this question, but whether this is um, filtered by voters at all, because I I, I sort of think if, if there is a, a good chunk of the um, sort of three and a half thousand or so that took the survey that aren't voters, then, you know, maybe they just wouldn't vote for anybody. But um uh, there's a, one other number I want to. Um, that's that's an aside. I mean, I think the number is still fascinating. One of the things that I, I noticed um, was around housing tenure. So similarly, as you might expect to what the numbers you've been um, talking about here, um, if you look at the number of renters, 
sample size of 793, so a good chunk of renters, whether it's social housing, private, whatever, 52% of renters overall said they would definitely not vote Conservative. In contrast, 44% of those um, owning their own property, um, either outright or with a mortgage or whatever it might be, saying that they would definitely not vote Labour. So a similar thing, and I think that's um, perhaps not surprising to people, but I think it's worth it's worth us continuing to re-emphasise because I think we often talk about age, understandably so, rightly so, as a, as a driver of voting attention. But and people have been talking about sort of um, you know rent quakes and uh, housing and that sort of thing. And I think Matt Singh was one of the um, a friend of this podcast was one of the earliest to sort of make that point. Others have made it, such as James Morris too, and I'm sure there are others as well. Um, but you know we shouldn't leave out the housing tenure, and there is this kind of complicated relationship, isn't there, between you know age, housing, jobs, all the rest of it that sort of goes together. I'm sure that mm. they're linked. But I suppose my listening to the numbers as you've characterised them, it does make me look back at those headline voting intention figures where you've got these two blocks again that seem quite entrenched, and it makes me think probably that's going to continue, right? Because you know if you've got these people that just viscerally dislike. Um, the other, the, either one of the two main parties, it doesn't feel like that's going to then lead to a break somewhere on the line that means that one of them wins by 10 points in a general election. But I suppose maybe we can't make that call. Well, the way that you could uh, suggest that could happen is um, the the subtlety in the, in the numbers was that there seems to be much more hatred for uh, one party or the other than there is for love of its uh, its opposite. So... I suppose you could say, look, there's a lot of um, leavers who would never, ever vote Labour. But so 53, uh, let's use that example, 53% of leavers would definitely not vote for Labour. 31% of leavers would definitely vote Tory. So there's a gap there. And actually, it's bigger with with Remainers. 51% of Remainers would um, never vote Tory. And only 23% would definitely vote Labour. So you know, the, um, it's it's entirely p- possible to see in that gap the emergence of some other party, whether that's Lib Dems getting, uh, getting their act together, whether that's UKIP coming back, whether it's uh, the David Miliband party, ha, ha, ha. Um, we said we weren't going to mention him this week. Um, come, uh, coming and doing something. But the point is, uh, look, there's, there's space, um, and that is a way. So obviously what that does is that eats into, you know, the... Uh, uh, a stronger remain four seats into Labour's vote share and vice versa. So that's a way of doing it. Yeah, and just just looking back at those numbers you were mentioned, you mentioned the um, the twenty five to forty nines, and there were a couple of other numbers in that YouGov poll that I thought were striking on that group because this has been the age old. I mean, it doesn't quite fit perfectly with the British election study, but this is the age old um, debate, right, between youth quakes and whatever. I don't want to I don't want to go over that rehash that argument about was there a youth quake or not again because that's been done. But in the 25 to 49 age bracket that you mentioned, um, there were a couple of questions that I think should worry the government, right? So there was looking forward, do you think Britain will become a better or worse place in 20 years' time? And 43% of the age group, 25 to 49, said a worse place. Only uh, 13% said better. Um, so that's a that's a lot of pessimism there with that age group, right? And that's a big, big demographic that Labour seem to be able to tap into at the moment. Um, and the government less so. And similarly, um, looking further forward, you expect you will or will not be able to save or invest enough during your working life to have a comfortable retirement. Yes, I expect to have enough for a comfortable retirement. 25% of the um, 
25 to 49 said that, 52% said no, I do not expect to have enough for a comfortable retirement. So whether you want to call it the squeezed middle, the left behinds, the whatever sort of uh, shorthand you want to put on it, right, there does seem to be quite a big demographic there um, that's open to Labour and maybe cynical of the government. Yeah, fundamentally, I think what what I get from from that uh, is there's a huge constituency in the country that feels like things are going badly and um, they are not being well served. Um, and actually, there's another question that that caught my eye on this, which is uh, about uh, whether government uh, should be doing more or um, shouldn't be doing more to help people. Um, and I was I was struck again um, the younger uh, the younger two age groups eighteen to twenty fours and then again the twenty five to forty nines very clearly feel that government should be doing more and let's give the exact wording governments do not do enough and should do more to try and improve people's lives in more ways versus governments do too much and interfere in areas of people's lives they should leave alone uh, very clearly a sense I think uh, amongst you know not just uh, not just millennials, um, to put it like that, um, but amongst you know the the old, older generation people people who've uh, you know got I guess got got children who've probably been through education or going through education and been in it for quite a while. They're seeing schools being squeezed. Um, they've probably often got parents who are alive and maybe are having a lot of healthcare and are seeing NHS waiting lists shooting up. Um, fundamentally, this group are looking at uh, at the country and feeling like it's going downhill, and government should be doing more, and they're not getting it. And mm. um, you know that does feel like a massive problem. Yes, um, there was other. I, mean, I feel like we're it's all bad news with the government on this podcast so far. There was one other bit of analysis that I thought we should look at, which was um, uh, first of all, I saw by Ian Warren of Election Data, but then. Um, a sort of similar argument was used by John Harris, citing work um, from Paula Surridge, who we hope to have on the podcast soon, actually. Hopefully you're listening, Paula. Um, but looking at the the way that the populations move around, and this was something I'm interested in, it sort of reminds me a bit of the US general election, but I'll come to that in a moment. And what this analysis was doing, again, data from YouGov, was looking at people that have left London, basically, and how how they would vote uh, in a sort of in, in how they voted in the last two general elections, and the long and short of it is what it what it shows is that ex Londoners are massively swinging towards Labour. Um, so basically, people that were in London, perhaps with the better educated, um, more more Remainy. So, so these were sixty seven sixty six percent Remain, thirty four percent Leave, for example. Much much more likely to be graduates uh, than non graduates. Um, very much uh, swinging uh, towards Labour and taking their that, that that sort of tendency with them as they move elsewhere in the country. And as and the, the hypothesis of this analysis essentially is that as people are moving out to the sort of other places in the southeast, some of these sort of uh, solid blue seats um, have the potential to turn red. Places like my hometown of Bedford, for example. Um, I'm not sure you can necessarily prove causation there. But um, but the idea being that as people move, some of these safe Tory seats are becoming less safe. So I mean, what do you make of some of that analysis? Because I think it's it's really fascinating to see how, you know, demographic trends and um, as we've discussed about how different demographics are voting. But then as people move around, that changes the composition of some of what what are safe and uh, marginal seats, doesn't it? It does, and it's not just a Labour, uh, London story. Um, the John Harris uh, also pointed towards uh, Edgbaston, Bristol Northwest, um, you know, places that are also around large metropolises that are becoming more, um, 
cosmopolitan and I, uh, try, I don't mean that in the as a euphemism for uh, uh, mixed ethnicity, but I mean more internationalist and outward looking. Um, so I think it's all it's all great. It's all really inter interesting. And I think uh, there's no reason to dispute it at all. But I do feel like it's kind of still missing a point, which is it's still only telling one side of the story. I mean, the Tories are currently polling 41 to 43 percent. Um, you can look at all these constituencies that are becoming more Labour and look at uh, places that are uh, where the Labour Labour vote share is is gradually creeping up and say, well, um, uh, you know, Rich, Richmond is is becoming liberal or Edgebaster is becoming Labour and, and the Tories should be worried. And that's fine and that's true. But somewhere, if if more people are becoming Labour voters, then you've also got to find and pay attention to the fact that other people are becoming more likely to become Tory voters. And mm. that's the flip side of the stuff that we're talking about here. Um, places that are, uh, or sorry, people that are, more more highly educated um more remainy are i guess the kind of people who uh, a couple of decades ago 30 years ago probably would have been tories are now significantly more likely to be labor that's fine but their counterparts the people who have spent less time in education um who who are living in in smaller towns uh, more rural areas who perhaps would have been labor 30 years ago well they're more likely to be tories so mm. Um, you know, I understand that a journalist um, is writing one story and it's unfair to expect them to cover every story. But if we're talking about this as political analysis, then we can't just focus on one side. Uh, 100% agree with that. And I, I think that, you know, um, it, it, there's a risk when we look at some of this stuff. I mean, there's, there's two there's two conflicting things going on. The one hand, there are these two blocks that we keep coming back to. And, you know, uh, I think those it's really worth um, dwelling on some of those, on, on some of the trends that are driving that. But on the other hand, we should avoid that tendency that we saw in America in, in 2016, which was kind of, oh, um, demographics equal change, equal a sort of permanent change. Um, um, you know, th there's a sort of destiny in demographics or whatever the phrase is that's used because, you know, yes, these trends are changing, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be this permanent Democrat majority in the US, as we've seen, or, or, or that the, or that the uh, which clearly isn't the case, uh, or, or that, um, you know, Labour, it's Labour's future because the young people are currently swinging towards Labour and therefore all Labour have got to do is stand still and they'll, they'll eventually just become the government by default almost. Um, or if we have another referendum on Europe in the future, that means that we'll well not remain but we'll rejoin because um all the uh what's it people say all the all the levers will die it's a very nice way of putting it isn't it um well right um to to nick a point that um i saw someone and apologies i can't can't remember who I, who i saw it from uh raising on twitter the other day if there's going to be a um a trend that comes from america then perhaps it's more like um the flipping or the democrats loss of the south the the way that the uh, the U.S. flipped from being a country where the Democrats had the South and the Republicans had the North to the other way around. Mm. Now, um, given everything we've just said, it feels like the more likely trend, perhaps, rather than um, this becomes a Labour country, is that uh, the South becomes more comfortable area for Labour and the North becomes more comfortable area for the Tories. Who knows? Maybe that's too strong, but that feels more like the direction that we might be going in. Rather than permanent government of one kind, yeah. Um, let's move on because we haven't got much longer left, but I wanted to talk about the customs union. Let's 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 bring things back to the present day almost. I think we've been talking much more in the abstract about 
uh, future trends, haven't we? But um, there's been some polling on um, the customs union by ICM um, looking at sort of what the public opinion is on that. And we should caveat, as ICM do, to be fair, these are really, really difficult um, subjects to poll on because it's really non- one thing we can be sure of is that people aren't 100% sure of what these things are. And to try and, in a survey environment, generally understand what public opinion on the customs union or single market or whatever, whatever it is, actually is, is really difficult. But ICM have tried with that in mind. Um, and they've given us a, a question with four statements, one of which is don't know. Different proposals, so the question wording reads as such, different proposals for customs options after Brexit have been in the news this week, which of the following statements comes closest to your view? And again, it's one of those, unfortunately, I have to read out to sort of explain what it says, but it is very important to leave the customs union properly so the UK can strike its own trade deals. Um, 35% said that. It is very important to stay in the customs union so um, so firms can trade with the EU more easily. 24% agreed with that. The best solution might involve some kind of compromise, perhaps along the lines of the cu- a customs partnership, because the alternative proposals are both flawed. 26% said that, 15% said don't know. So a plurality in favour of leaving the customs union um, and uh, 53% of conservative voters, again, going back to those blocks, um, chose that statement. So really difficult question wording, Leo. I guess if I had one observation, I was a bit surprised that the sort of um, best of both worlds option didn't do better. So the best solution might involve some compromise, uh, you know, of both because the other two are bad. Only 26% agreeing with that. I mean, that felt a bit, not not to criticise ICM, but that felt a little bit like a cop-out, right? That's the easy answer. Oh, it's it's going to be a compromise of both. But actually, that's not what the numbers seem to say. Yeah. Um, so I think I've got, I've got a bunch of scattered observations about this that I will, I'll attempt to weave into some coherent narrative or I'll just throw out. So um, I don't, um, I'm finding it slightly strange that it's got the word properly. It's very important to leave the customs union properly. Um, that seems a bit of a loaded wording. I'm not really sure what that's doing there. I think the poll would have, the question would have been perfectly sensible without it. It feels like it's sort of saying, um that anything else is isn't a proper brexit um but Mm. but there you go that's the Um, argument that's used i suppose but anyway sort of gone right yeah um so uh, yeah i mean it's interesting that that is the single most popular uh choice although still only one in three um they've got they've very helpfully provided a split of um leavers and remainers by party um, and again, I don't think this is complete. Uh, uh, this certainly isn't the first time that, that we've seen it, but it's striking again that conservative leavers are much more diehard than Labour leavers. So, uh, conservative leavers, 71% of them pick this option of it's important to leave it properly. Only 50% of Labour leavers do. Uh, so, it does, you can kind of see how. Um, you know, uh, Labour leavers, of course, are only a minority of Labour voters, and only half of them are steadfast in wanting to leave the customs union properly, as it were. So mm. um, it sort of feels, looking at that that internal, like the problem for Labour is a bit uh, less than mm. is sometimes made out to be. Um, and then one final observation, which is a sort of very polling matters observation, which is they've also got a, a handy split for your level of political interest very fairly not very not at all and i'm really struck by the fact that there's a really sharp um gradient of the people who are most politically interested are most keen to leave the customs union properly so 47 percent 
of people who are very interested in politics chose that option, which is well above the national average. Um, and, and then it's 36 for fairly, 25% for not very, and 24% for not at all. That does sort of make me wonder whether there might be a bit of an issue here with the sample, whether I, I, re, I recall a while back there was, I can't remember which it was, one of the agencies noticed that when they put a poll up, they would get a wave of uh, UKIP supporting, I think UKIP supporting older men all jumping on the poll straight away. And it was mm. obviously being circulated around. And it's just quite striking that the people that there's so strongly this people who are very interested in politics are, uh, saying are, ext- are the strongest levers. And I just wonder whether there might be a bit of an issue here with sample. Mm. And then the not at alls are also a bit a bit more in favour, well, um, but not to the same degree, but they're much more in favour of leaving the customs union than staying. But yeah, you're right. It's a, that, that is striking. A little, little nugget there to look at. Um, let's move on from the customs union and talk a bit about um, Northern Ireland in closing, because this is something that caught my eye this week about this apparent row uh, between Theresa May and Jacob Rees-Mogg about the question of customs partnerships and uh, Northern Ireland. And, and essentially, to paraphrase an article in The Times by Sam Coates, um, the Prime Minister is uh, supposedly has said to Jacob Rees-Mogg something along the lines of, we, we can't play fast and loose with the union. Um, she's not confident about how a border poll in Northern Ireland might go if there was to be one. And, uh, you know, therefore, we need to be very mindful of that when proposing solutions uh, for the Irish border question. Jacob Rees-Mogg, as you might expect, his position is basically, no, no, we should prioritise the union. It will be fine. Um, Nothing to see here kind of thing. And what what struck me and why I bring this up on this podcast most of all is because uh, in Sam Coates' write-up in The Times, um, polling does seem to have played a um, sort of important sort of role in in Theresa May's judgment here. Um, You might even dare I say polling has mattered here, um, (laughs) to to quote the podcast name. Um, But there's two, these numbers are actually quite old from from 2017. And there are two, two, there's lots of different figures, but there's two figures I want to call out, right? So the one that seems to have caused the most furore is um, this poll by Lucid Talk, um, which has it basically presents the option for people in Northern Ireland of either remaining in the EU for reunification, 48% um, chose that, or leaving the EU by staying in the UK, 45% um, said that. So this was, this is, and 6% were undecided, uh, 0.1% um, would not vote. So this has been used as evidence, this poll question, that um, a border poll could be won by the nationalists and basically we could be heading for a united Ireland because of Brexit. Um, and I guess the Prime Minister has made the judgment there that, well, I can't play, you know, I'm not sure how a border poll would go, so I, I, I can't risk it. Um, and off the back of this, um, and off the back of this uh, sort of furore and this story in the Times, um, Sinn Féin have called, um, have called for a, a border poll, as you might expect them to. But there is a, a couple of important caveats here. The first is that the commissioners of that poll um, were the European Parliament group of which Sinn Féin is a member. I'm not suggesting there's anything untoward of the poll itself, but you should also you should always bear in mind who commissioned it and uh, you know what the question wording might be doing. Um, but the second thing to pay attention to is there's a tracker that Lucid Talk do, which asks much more neutrally, should Northern Ireland remain a part of the United Kingdom or leave the United Kingdom and join the Republic of Ireland as one nation-state Ireland? Um, if a border poll uh, referendum was held tomorrow, which way would you vote? And in that one, 55% said they'd remain basically pro-union, uh, 34% said leave and United Ireland, um, 10% said undecided, 1% you know, wouldn't vote. 
Um, now, normally, you'd exclude undecided from these sorts of polls. So I guess all the listeners really need to know to here is that the traditional way of asking this through a referendum question, it would appear unionists still have a solid lead, as you might expect. But when you couch this in the language of remaining in the EU, things are much, much closer. I don't know what you think, Leah. My instinct is to trust the second question, the, the tracker question, much, much, much more. I mean, I think... I am sceptical that given that, you know, the Labour Party, which is really pro-European, was it seems to have sort of pri- prioritised Jeremy Corbyn's leadership over single market membership or, you know, remaining after all. And yet somehow unionists in Northern Ireland are going to prioritise uh, Europe over being British. I find that really hard to believe. But um, what do you th- what do you make of this? Yeah, it's really difficult. I think my reading feels pretty similar to yours. But I guess kind of the point that strikes me here is we're in a pretty scary situation again, where we've been a couple of times in recent years where polling is just beginning to shape political decisions um, with polls that are still quite close. um, And we still perhaps are doing that before we've got complete confidence that we've worked out how to get completely solid, reliable numbers. Um, And, you know, I guess I say that as someone who clearly really likes polling and really finds polling incredibly important and useful. Um, But you could just see how much damage it could do for the polling industry if this sort of, once again, started leading conversations and then we started finding that the polls weren't quite as accurate as we hoped they were um and you know it's just it sort of feels like this is once again one of those things that could just push us towards having regulation of polling in a way that i think would be extremely unhelpful but unwelcome if we're not quite cautious about how much we actually know at the moment. Oh, oh definitely i mean i think that you're completely right as well that it does show you how much this stuff does feed into the political process um but on the substance of the issue here i mean i suppose a cynic would say um as jacob rees morgan and you know the sort of brexiters in the tory party say that you know Theresa may may not necessarily really care about the nuance of of some of this uh, she's just using it as a political tool to try and you know kick the can down the road and um pursue her agenda on this particular question right i mean i i i i don't know that any sensible analysis can look at this and, and seriously say that um you, you know northern ireland would vote to be part of a, a united ireland but i suppose there's enough ambiguity here that you can't be certain of that, and I guess to give, to play devil's advocate with myself, to give the prime minister her due, you know, her her role is to be prime minister of the whole of the UK, right? So, you know, why should she take the risk to satisfy her cabinet colleagues? Right, and um, and I appreciate there's alternative views on what I'm about to say, but her characteristics do tend to be of kicking cans down the road and looking at risks and seeking to avoid them rather than boldly doing things. Now, I get that the general election didn't exactly uh, uh, speak to that, but um, it sort of feels like it would be unfair to call her out um, as sort of saying that she's got some great secret master plan mm. and she's trying to achieve some some big, bold vision. I mean, her, her big, bold vision generally seems to be sort of quietly getting along and and avoiding uh, getting into trouble. 
it's like the political version of living for the weekend, isn't it? It's just we're just going to get through the uh, get through the next week and then see what the net for the following week. If you can is. hit the cans, yeah. Um, we've we've gone on a bit longer than usual here, Leo. So uh, we're going to leave it there, I think. But um, a big thanks uh, to Leo Barassi for joining me to go through some of those numbers. Um, a bit more in depth than usual this week, but let us know what you look, what you think, and if there are any topics that we've discussed today or that we haven't discussed that you'd like us to delve into more. Uh, we do appreciate any suggestions for guests or topics uh, for us to. Uh, so we'll discuss or have on the show um, but for now thanks for listening and if you can as ever share us on social media it really really helps um, give us a like on Facebook or sort of a positive rating on iTunes and other podcast apps anything like that helps us um, to get new listeners and things like that which we really do appreciate um, but for now thanks for li- listening and have a good week